Welcome to Healing Wisdom, a Thursday morning talk show featuring guests sharing their stories and knowledge. We discuss the healing aspects of the arts, metaphysics, social justice, and adventure through all types of terrain. So join me, Pandora Peoples, here on WOMR 92.1 FM in Provincetown and WFMR 91.3 FM in Orleans. We're streaming worldwide at WOMR.org. brilliant world-class guitarist, composer, educator, and musical director, Stefan Rambel. He's headlined at Lincoln Center, Carnegie Hall, the Town Hall in New York City, and the Lyon Opera House in France. He's toured around the world and performed at the Montreal Jazz Festival, Rochester International Jazz Festival, the Django Reinhardt Jazz Festival in France, and many others. And he's coming to the Music Room Cape Cod September 3rd. Welcome, Stefan. Thank you for being with us. Your music is brilliant, and you're often compared with Django Reinhardt. A lot of people don't know that Django Reinhardt's Gypsy Jazz was influenced by Bach and other classical uh, composers, and you released an album with many of Django's complicated and unknown classical influence works. So I would love for you to tell us about your relationship with Django and your album. Django is a very interesting character, very important musician. He's the father of modern guitar, perhaps the greatest guitarist who ever lived. He defined like all the code of, um, of guitar, including like all the classical, the gypsy, jazz, whatever like influence he had, he like composed it. And he went back to the classical rules of music, meaning like the rules of harmony and rhythm. He was in control of everything. And of course he was very influenced, as you said, by Bach and by, um, Chopin and a lot by Debussy and Ravel and Fauré, the musician we call the Impressionists. And amongst his big, huge body of work, um, he had like 17 um, pieces for solo guitar that were heavily influenced by these guys. So that's why um, I transcribed them, the 17 of them, and recorded the album that I call Django the Impressionist because it's really in the vein of like a continuation of um, what Debussy or Ravel or Fauré did. music impressionistic is that especially true for Django and I'd love for you to talk about growing up in <laughs> <laughs> yeah I grew up in Fontainebleau and actually I am in Fontainebleau right now for the next uh, 15 minutes or so and um, Fontainebleau is the home of impressionism this is where it was born and first were the impressionist painters uh, that arrived in mid 19th century and also the composer of Debussy Ravel Fauré uh, impressionism really refers to um, 
a way of composing not only on a structural point of view, but with a meaning behind it. It's a little bit like doing theme scoring, trying to evoke something, an evocation of nature, of like nymph dancing in the forest, whatever, whatever that is, you know, the ocean. And it's to compose based on an image like that. So now it's supposed to accompany an image generated by the listener in a mind. So that's really what we call impressionism. The big guy like was uh, the, Claude Debussy, is like the, the guy who revolutionized everything. He's a genius. So it changed the way also music is written because he started to integrate um, sounds from like China, from like uh, the gamelan uh, in uh, Indonesia. And he started to include all that in his music, different harmonies and a, a certain sense of tonality that is way more floating rather than major or minor. So he invented a new way of like creating music and all. And um, Django Reinhardt was pretty much like uh, perceiving tonality the same way Debussy was in a very different way, in a floating way and in a non-major or minor only way. It was like, it was broader than that. There is like a third kind. It's very evocative of things, you know what I mean? And because he grew up here, uh, he was in Paris and then he moved to Fontainebleau, uh, Django, um, because he, he was like surrounded by that vibe he, that helped him to like really develop that impressionistic uh, side of him. You actually spent years, like six or seven years with this Romani people, correct? Uh, immersing yes. yourself in the culture. So I'd love for you to talk about that relationship between culture and music. Well, it's always two things. There is a way of learning, which is very structural. It's very important. It's the grammar. The grammar, the technique, is what we call the art. There is also the um, neuronal mirroring way of learning, basically by, by immersion. So there are two ways to learn. One is like very logical, structural, with a lot of um, grammar in it. That's where you learn harmony and rhythm. And you learn really the fabric of music. You perfect your technique. This is where there is a lot of work. There is a lot of work in music, a lot. But there is also the other aspect called cultural, uh, which is uh, very mythological and which comes by immersion. So when you immerse yourself with people and they play music a certain way, you tend to, by, by seeing and just repeating what you see naturally, you will like gain something that's going to come out very quickly by a neuronal uh, mirroring which doesn't really matter what it is. <laughs> but there's always those two aspects. But there's always a lot of work also from the other side. I think that every human being is different. We're all unique. And every one of us will play or paint or whatever we do is going to be the same thing, but different every time. Because we cannot reproduce what another human being does, you know? So... Um, we have a common ground. There is there is something that is the same and something that is different. That's like 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 that for everything. You know, there is a sameness and a uniqueness in everything. And in the sameness, we find the laws of music, the laws of nature. So when you have a C major, it's the same C major for everyone on earth, for any genre that we play, every culture we are like whatever. A C major is a C major. That's physics. But then after that, what we do with it? not only changes from instrument to instrument, from country to country, from region to region, culture to culture, but also person to person. There is not twice the same thing ever. That's very, uh, no matter how much we try, there will not be twice the same thing. 
Tell us about your Django New Orleans album that came out this year. New Orleans is the home of jazz. It's the, the birthplace. So when I say the word jazz, for example, I always refer to that primal point, to the point of birth, the swing. The swing was born there. And it's a very important thing um, to keep in mind. Um, so for example, I was saying earlier that there is a sameness and a uniqueness. When I listen to Louis Armstrong, when I listen to Miles Davis and John Coltrane and uh, uh, Gary Burton, every time it's completely different. And we call it jazz, but how can it be the same if it's all different? See, And you can get lost in trying to define what jazz is. Jazz is just the archetypal moment, that birth. So from that, it's an archetypal frame. And from this archetypal frame, once you study the frame, then you can make anything emerge from it, coming from yourself. That's why Miles Davis is it's a lot of Miles Davis. When I hear Miles Davis, I know it's Miles Davis. I don't hear jazz. I hear Miles Davis. And I know that Miles Davis studied jazz, meaning he studied that primal frame, like... Um, uh, Louis Armstrong did, you know what I mean? And same thing with Coltrane. When you listen to A Love Supreme, you still know that that guy has studied the standards before that came from New Orleans. So the jazz part is that archetypal frame, that's that grammar that everyone studies, and then there is the personality. So um, that's why I refer to, to that word jazz always to the archetypal point. And Django Reinhardt also heard jazz for the first time in Paris, coming, people coming from New Orleans. So he gave his music was born into that soil, you know, that musical soil. And um, what I wanted to do with Django New Orleans is, in the modern day and age, like right now, we have a tiny bit of a different sound. We don't sound like 150 years ago. We have different instruments, different amplification, and all. So we try to record like um, plugged in reality of the day. So it's a modern sound. But we still play like traditional songs and like coming from New Orleans, from Django and all with the specific Django uh, type of groove, you know, like type of swing. It swings a very specific way. There is a little push into it, you know. So there's that drive that you, that you find in Django's music is there. But we also have like the sousaphone. I replaced the bass by the sousaphone, which creates a way like more like funky type of song. It doesn't swing the same either. And the marriage between the sousaphone, the guitars, and then we have trumpet, percussion, we have like clarinet, we have a finger. So there is also like all those colors like New Orleans. So there is that inner drive with all these colors and this funkiness from New Orleans. And that creates something that is uh, not, it's, it's original while being the same, while not being like weird and oh, it's a completely new thing. No, it's the same thing that we've been playing, except we tied it in a completely different way, in a very organic way. And it sounds like nothing else. So it's, uh, and it sounds like jazz. So you recognize everything, you know? And there is in it like um, the virtuosity of the Django world with the violin and the guitars. And we have like an amazing like trumpet player and saxophone and all that. So you have like a real, real super high level of playing because I hire only the very best in the band. So it's like an incredible band of performers. It's very concert. The concert level is very high. But because also we use these like funky grooves and stuff from New Orleans, there's also that party that you find in New Orleans. It's the Dionysian world, you know? 
that uh, that meets. It's really like um, what Nietzsche called in his book the birth of tragedy, the meeting between Apollo, which is the beauty of the form, and Dionysos, which is the inner life that's contained within it. So we have both of them. And he said, when both meet, this is when you have great tragedy. You know, this is when you have a great story. And I believe this is like in Django, New Orleans, this is where it meets, you know, with Dionysos, the party time in New Orleans, and Apollo, the beauty of the form and the excellency of the performance. I love Bistro Fada and Big Brother, which are in the Woody Allen films Midnight in Paris and Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Did you compose them for the soundtracks? So Big Brother, I composed before, and uh, one day they called me and they said they would like to use it uh, on Vicky Cristina Barcelona. So yes, of course, that was great. And they used it like all over the place, which was amazing. Um, and that was the beginning of my relationship with Woody Allen. And they, they called me to um, uh, compose the, the theme for Midnight in Paris after that. So I did, and that's Bistro Fada. Uh, after that, I also composed the song, and I was in the, on a scene in Magic in the Moonlight. Uh, but unfortunately, that scene has been cut, so there's no song and I'm <laughs> not on the screen. And uh, I also just caught the full score for um, Rifkin Festival. That was his latest movie. So that I did like the entire score from beginning to end. This is Bistro Fada from Stefan Rembel. Django to me is like, is to the guitar what Bach is to the keyboard. The more you study Django, the better you understand your instrument and, and you start to possess a certain fire, a certain technique, and also a certain way of playing the swing. But that's not all I did. Like I, I played like a lot of rock and roll. I play a lot of classical guitar, funk, like everything. I studied really everything. And when I compose, like all these things come out. There's nothing like bizarre from another world. It's all everything that we kind of know, but everything is arranged in a certain way that is unique because I try to tap within like that thing in myself that is the uniqueness, you know, like, and to let the thing blend naturally. And I always have an image in mind, I always have something. So it's a very impressionistic act when I compose. You're performing at the Music Room Cape Cod in West Yarmouth, September 3rd, so folks can get tickets at musicroomcapecod.com slash tickets. My next guest is Rebecca Ann Robertson, the founding director of the Mayan Melipona Bee Sanctuary Project. Today we're talking about saving bees, the Melipona bee honey, and the wonderful work that the Melipona Bee Sanctuary Project has done with modern indigenous people in the Yucatan region of Mexico over the past year. Rebecca will also touch on the ancient spiritual significance of the Mayan Melipona Bee. Welcome back, Rebecca. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Pandora, for inviting me again. And we are an environmental and a cultural project that works with Mayan women and Mayan stingless bees. The bees that we have here in the United States were actually brought from Europe about 400 years ago by the colonists. So the honey we put in our tea is from a Europe European bee. But here in 
the tropical zone of, of North America and South America, there's a little stingless bee. It's about half the size of a conventional European honeybee. And as I mentioned, it's stingless. And that bee makes the most medicinal honey on the planet. And we can get into that a little bit more as we um, talk. Uh, the Yucatan produces about 50% of Mexico's honey production. And Mexico is one of the largest honey production producers in the planet. So you have to you can conceive that there must be a rich abundance of flowers for those bees to be forging and, and getting nectar from. So it's a densely forested region. And this little melopona bee is in danger of becoming extinct, even though it's the primary pollinator of the rainforest. Those conventional bees, Apis mellifera, the European bee, was introduced to the Yucatan about 50 years ago. And the nesting sites in the wild are being overtaken by the European bees. So our project is a solution-oriented project. We, and we'll talk about this too, um, we are bringing bees out to Mayan villages where they're building bee yards and Mayan women specifically are, are using their ancient, traditional, cultural Mayan beekeeping techniques to reintroduce populations of this Mayan bee back to the rainforest. That rainforest is where 50% of Mexico's jaguars live. So again, it's still, there's still a lot of trees, but without the bees, you don't have a healthy rainforest. Without a healthy rainforest, you don't have the healthy pollinator, which is the bee. Can you talk about the cultural significance of the bee? There, there are three remaining Mayan codices. There was a massive book burning that happened um, when the Spanish colonists um, came into Mexico. And there are only three remaining books. One of them is the Madrid Codice. I'm gonna, I don't know if you can see pictures. It's a it's just a gorgeous book. It's an accordion-shaped book, 112 pages long. About the last 20 pages of the Madrid Codice references the bee god, El Musenkab, the bee in Mayan called Shunenkab, honey, wax, what day you would harvest, the offerings that you make to the bee gods, the songs that you sing to the bee gods. The Mayan people believe that this bee is their ancestor spirit. When you draw a Mayan glyph, one way to draw that glyph is with star portals in the glyph. They believe the bee flies across the veil and brings back information, flies across the veil, carrying the souls in and out. If you see a beehive 
um, that the shape of the beehive is a pyramid shape. The Mayans will tell you the bees taught them how to build the pyramids. So this cultural significance of this particular bee, Shunankab, is so massively important. And if the bee disappears, that large portion of their culture also will disappear. So we are a, we we've we're a multifaceted project, kind of catching lots of balls. So from an environmental scientific standpoint, the bee's in trouble. And and we have solutions for that. We can repopulate Mayan villages with the bee and create corridors of breeding populations of bees. And that's our mission. And we're working on doing that. Our project's only two years old. We are a 501c3. So y'all, please donate. It's tax deductible. Um, and so we're an environmental project. One of the people on our team is the foremost and one of the foremost entomologists in America, Stephen Buckman. So that's fantastic. We also have Mayan archaeologists that are associated with the project. We have Mayan people on the ground. Uh, I'm so, uh, so excited about our next recipient of bees. He's a Mayan man who's a linguist. Duke University was just down there working with him because he can look at the, the, the glyphs that are on the archaeological sites and interpret what those glyphs are saying. He approached us and said, I want to have bees because he wants to do as it's instructed in the Mayan Codex. This blows my mind to have a Mayan person with Mayan bees embodying literally the instruction of the ancient book and reporting back. So our goal also, it, we, we're environmental, we're cultural. We wanna build an education center where we can be the repository of this information and Alfredo can report back. We, we would like to have a, um, again, a library that has Mayan songs, all the Mayan words that are related to bees and beekeeping and the flowers that they harvest in Mayan. Um, that again, the rituals, the days have it video, have it written, have it in the Mayan glyphs, in the Mayan language, in Spanish, and also in English. So we're we're really in a, a precipice situation where things are disappearing fast. So we are really making a concerted effort to reach out to as many people as we can be a song catcher and grab that information before it disappears and then also have it there accessible to people where it may have already disappeared in their village 
but they can come and they can relearn those ancient ways of beekeeping and ceremony. And if you lose, you know, indigenous people around the world are all facing this. We live in a modern time. There's TV. The kids are more interested in doing something else than listening to their elders. But there are also people there that care about their culture and they recognize that they that it's precious. It's very, very precious. And I would also say it's precious to Gaia. You know, Gaia, the the relationship between the bee and the and the trees, it's a it's a 65 million year, year old love story. So fertility around the world is created through pollination. And that magical alchemy, this my beloved come to me, sip of my nectar, is is magic. And that is what produces our beautiful green world. Talk about the rainforest and the medicinal plants of the rainforest and its connection with the honey. Yeah. Yeah. So Mexico, there's an there. It's estimated there are five thousand medicinal plants. So um, an interesting thing. This I'm holding a, a little bottle of the stingless bee honey. Um, the the bees are foraging on rainforest plants, which are highly medicinal, and also the the. I'm sorry, rainforest trees, which are highly medicinal, and rainforest plants, which are highly medicinal. So the nectar itself is very medicinal. It has all of those antis, the antibacterial, antimicrobial, anti-inflammatory. This honey, I don't know if you can see, it's watery, it's runny. And it's from a tropical zone where it's hot. So the bees have also had to figure out how to add an antifungal component. So that makes this honey different from conventional honey. In addition to that, and I don't know if you can see this, the hive, I showed you the picture, is... Um, pyramid shaped around this pyramid, which this is the brood nest where the eggs are. The bees make honey pots made out of wax and resins from trees. A tree produces a resin because it's trying to heal its wound. So the bees are taking those resins and making little honey pots, and the honey is stored in this honey pot being infused with that with that resin so you've got the nectar that's medicinal and then you've got an infusion of this tree resin as well so you're double dosing up on your medicinal constituents the mayan people maybe don't have access to western medicine or don't trust western medicine or can't afford western medicine This honey is the number one ingredient in Mayan healing remedies. So again, if the bee is lost, 
all of this medicine also is not available to the Mayan people and to the world. So that's also a really important point to make about these precious tiny little bees. They only make about two pounds of honey a year versus uh, conventional bees make 50 pounds of honey a year. So little amounts of precious honey. Um, we do sell the honey on our website, myanmeliponabee.org. We just posted a sales page this week. So as far as I know, we're the only people here in the United States that have the honey available. We built a bee sanctuary um, that we now have about 45 mother hives in our bee sanctuary. And with that bee sanctuary, as we divide the hives, then we gift those hives out to people in the villages. We, we've also been able to uh, harvest this year. We took about 15 liters of honey from all of our hives. And that's what we're selling on our website is the honey from our own bee sanctuary. Thank you, Rebecca Ann Robertson, founding director of the Mayan Melipona Bee Sanctuary Project for joining us this morning. Our full conversation will be podcast. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Healing Wisdom at Outermost Radio. All of our shows are podcast at WOMR.org. Also check out HealingWisdomRadioShow.com and contact me at Pandora at WOMR.org. Theme music is provided by Mazin. You can find her website at mazinmusic.com 